Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together Bruce and I have written 35 cookbooks, including the Instant Air Fryer Bible, which is on sale one month from the date that this episode drops, essentially. That is a book, the Instant Air Fryer Bible, written for all air fryers, but specifically for the Instant Brand Air Fryers of Vortex and Omni. And I want to tell you something about this book that may surprise you. Ten of the recipes are photographed step by step. They literally show you what each step along the way, so you can truly get it right on how to make, I don't know, irresistible chicken wings. But what's really cool about that, at least I think it's really cool, is that was all shot in our kitchen. And you can actually see our kitchen in those shots, the actual kitchen, where we live and where we work. And Bruce is in those shots. It's not much of Bruce. It's mostly just his torso that's in the shots and 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 your hands. I stopped biting my nails a month before the shoot. Yeah, that was was always a good decision. So up on today's podcast, we're going to talk about inaugural and presidential dinners. We've got our typical one-minute cooking tip. We have a great interview coming up. And as always, we'll end with what's making us happy in food this week. So, you know, food tastes change all the time, right? Menus change. And one of the places that you can sort of track changes of food trends and the tastes of the country is in the White House. The presidential meals, food served in the White House, inaugural ball dinners, all of that kind of reflect what's going on in the country's palate. Right. And so you can kind of see how the country eats. Of course, nobody ate as fancy as a presidential dinner. Nobody did. But if you go back to James Buchanan's inaugural ball, (laughs) which would be on March 4th, back in the days when the inauguration was in March in the original constitutional idea, March 4th, 1857, you could kind of see where the country is because of what was eaten at that dinner. That menu included 400 gallons of oysters. Wow. Yeah, is that shocked? 400 <laughs> gallons of shocked oysters no, or that I, 400 gallons of oysters? I think it's 400 gallons of oysters. And okay. then 60, this is, kills me, the two things here, 60 saddles of mutton. Mm. Now, let's start with the saddle. First of all, very few people know what the cut of the saddle is, right? Because you couldn't find it. You can't find it. And then the second is mutton, not lamb. I want to tell you about that in a minute. Go on. They had four saddles of venison, 125 beef tongues. Mm, I love those. Me too. We go to taco stands specifically so I can get the tongue tacos <laughs> at real true. I know it's a true taco stand if they're tongue tacos. All they right, had 75 hams. My guess is those are fresh hams and not smoked. My there guess. were 500 quarts of chicken salad, 500 quarts of jellies and my guess is those are savory jellies that go along with uh, the yeah, lamb both I, my guess is both actually. sweet and savory jellies yes. and three thousand dollars now think about 1857 
$3,000 worth of wine. I, it's, the mutton is what's so curious here because, of course, as tastes have changed over time, people have gotten afraid of very strong tastes. And uh, now, of course, people want lamb and rarely touch mutton. But I'll have you know that I have planned out a whole foodie trip to Kentucky this upcoming March for Bruce and me. And one of the things that I want to do, which I have done and he has never done, is I want to take him to Owensboro, Kentucky and introduce him to the pulled mutton that is served at the barbecue joints in Owensboro, Kentucky. It is kind of an experience of a lifetime to have pulled, not lamb, but pulled mutton. Now, for those of you listening, mutton equals sheep. Yeah, right. Older mutton, sheep. It's a sheep. You're not eating lamb. You're nope. eating sheep. Nope. And so it has a much stronger taste. I actually went to a place in. I think I went to the Moonlight in Owensboro the last time I was there, and I was on a trip researching for our handbook, Ham: An Obsession with the Hind Quarter. I was I was researching American country hams from Kentucky producers. So I ate at this place in Owensboro, and we're going on a big. Eat, a, eat mm-hmm. ourselves into the ground, trip to Kentucky, to Lexington and Louisville and all around there and drink bourbon until we're dead um, in March. If you know a place where you would like to send us in Kentucky, <laughs> you have a food recommendation where we have to go, write us on our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, or find us on social media and tell us because yeah. we would love your recommendations for a foodie trip to Kentucky. A little trivia about James Buchanan, as we just talked about his inaugural ball. He was, and still remains, the only bachelor president. Right. And up until then, there were always multiple inaugural balls, which they kind of is again today. He thought that was outrageous and wasted money. So he reinstated the single inaugural ball concept. But what kills me is he had to spend $15,000 of, mm. of 1857 money mm-hmm. to build mm-hmm. a building to hold it. Pre-Civil War money. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of money. And in, in Abraham Lincoln's inaugural luncheon on March 4th, 1861. Now, this is a fraught moment in the nation's history, March 4th, 1861, and Abraham's inaugural luncheon menu. Things had changed a little bit. On the menu was mock turtle soup. Now, this is very interesting that it's mock turtle turtle. soup because terrapin was still a common thing served in U.S. restaurants in the late 19th century. You can go to the Plaza Hotel and still find terrapin on their Thanksgiving menus from the late 1890s. But he had mock turtle soup. And I'm not quite sure what they would have meant in 1861 by mock turtle. I don't know. Is that a chickeny soup that's a Tastes little like bit chicken. fishy. <laughs> I, I don't know. It had corned beef and cabbage. Oh, mm. see, Lincoln was a man after my <laughs> own heart. Corned beef and cabbage, parsley, potatoes, blackberry pie and coffee. Oh, see, Lincoln is my man. <laughs> I would Okay, I don't know what mock turtle soup is exactly to Lincoln. I know what I think it is, but I don't know what it is to him. But, okay, kick that off. Well, he wasn't a... Corned beef and cabbage, yeah. parsley, potatoes, blackberry pie and coffee. Thank you. I'll, I would I would be glad to attend. Mr. And because Lincoln. it was lunch, they didn't drink any alcohol. And he wasn't known for like culinary anything. No. He was a believer that you have to eat to survive. Food for fuel, and so that's why that was a very simple menu. And then state dinners from the 1930s all the way to the 50s strangely included a lot of turkey. Well, turkey was considered so 
U.S. on the international scale. Oh, didn't Franklin, Ben Franklin, want to make it the national it did, bird it did, and but, not but the eagle? This is much later than that, than Franklin. Yeah. Franklin's a little bit dead by 1930. Um, <laughs> to almost 200 years. <laughs> it's a little, well, no, but he was he was there in the late 1700s, but still, nonetheless, um, it, it, it was kind of a, a thing. It kind of represented the United States, and it's during the right early mid part of the 20th century that the turkey becomes ensconced in the thanksgiving celebrations mm-hmm. around the country and so every state dinner from like the 30s on was sort of like a little mini thanksgiving and eisenhower was the last one to do that cuz then we get up to president john f kennedy oh yes camelot itself a camelot came along and everything had to become fancier and of yes. course the kennedys for a luncheon with Princess Grace in 1961 served soft-shell crab almondine with a puy montrachet 1958. Oh, a very good year. They served spring lamb a la brioche with a Chateau Croton Grand C 1955. Oh, an even better year. A salade mimoso and with Dom Perignon. What in the heck is a mimosa salad? Do they go out and chop a mimosa tree down and you put oil and vinegar on it? My guess is that's with oranges because a mimosa is champagne and an orange You're juice. guessing. And I'm serving. liking my idea better. They chopped a mimosa tree down and fed it to Princess Grace. And for dessert, strawberries, Romanoff, pettifores. Of course. With demitasse. Of course, with demi. <laughs> my mother had demitasse. Well, I grew up solidly middle class in <laughs> Dallas, Texas, and my mother had demitasse cups. We didn't even know what demitasse was. In fact, when I was in junior high, mother started serving those International instant coffees. <laughs> Remember those those in the Swiss mocha me, in the yeah. metal tents. Oh, she started serving that in demi tasse <laughs> cups after dinner. Oh, we were fancy instant coffee and demi. Well, my mother had a whole collection of demi tasse cups and spoons, but she had a mocha coffee maker, so she mm, did make we, espresso. We had a Mister Coffee, uh, but she had this little box of. Brightly colored rock sugar that she always served with the demi tasse. Oh, God, because you would want a big rock of sugar in your <laughs> tiny little <laughs> tablespoon of coffee. No, I'm sorry. I don't put sugar in coffee, so please forgive me. I don't drink sugar in any coffee beverage, so I don't understand that whole thing because I like bitter flavors. But that's because I grew up partially on an Oklahoma farm with my grandparents where I was eating mustard greens and turnip greens and all that at a very young age. So I love bitter flavors of all sorts. I even like, here's one for you, that they didn't ever serve at any presidential dinner. I even like whorehound candy, but Ew, that's, that's another matter You also entirely. like black licorice and root beer, so that's uh, just... Ugh. Uh, because I am a human. I like black <laughs> licorice and... <laughs> Root beer. I love root beer. In fact, if you go out on our YouTube channel, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, I think there's a video of my making you root made beer. Root beer syrup. I did. I made a syrup that you can mix with seltzer. It's a long, involved process, actually, but you should check it out. Okay, and so. What are you going to end with? During the Obama's White House, they had a dinner to honor Norway, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, and Iceland. Heads of state from all those countries came to the White House, and they were served new Nordic cuisine with an American twist. Uh, this is like Marcus Samuelson stuff, new Nordic cuisine with a, a, a U.S. twist. Well, what's that. really weird is like on the same menu was venison tartare with truffle vinaigrette, which is sort of new Nordic, but also chicken and waffles. <laughs> Fried chicken and waffles was served <laughs> right next to venison tartare oh, with truffle vinaigrette. Oh, I like vinaigrette. it. Chicken and waffles <laughs> with venison tartare in a truffle vinaigrette. That is so weird. That, 
<laughs> that makes that breaks my brain. That is international. And then for the height of pretension, because New Nordic emphasizes locally foraged ingredients, they were also served baby radishes impaled on pieces of wood from trees in the White House backyard. Wow, that is really <laughs> localized food. Hey, I, got, I chipped my tree apart back here so I could shove a stick in a radish <laughs> and hand it to I'm you. I'm hoping those are the radishes Michelle grew in the White House garden, I'm, but well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And if you think... Michelle grew radishes. I got news. I got so much news right, for you. Michelle's people grew radishes. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I have. I. I uh, like the Obamas. Please don't at me. I have great affection for Michelle Obama, but I cannot see Michelle Obama doing what I do in my gardens, which is crawling around on my hands and knees, picking up all the crap that falls. Oh, with and, the net over your head to keep the gnats out of your ears. Yeah. Well, I can't see Michelle Obama <laughs> with the net over her head or the deer fly strips on the back of my cap to catch deer flies like flypaper on the back of my cap. I'm telling you way too much and I'm telling you why I will never be invited to any sort of presidential or inaugural dinner. Up next, our one minute cooking tip. But before we get there, Let's say that it would be great if you would subscribe to this podcast, if you would rate it, if you would give it a rating, drop down on the Apple menu or the Audible menu. So we'll see at the bottom a way to give this podcast a rating. That would be much appreciated on the Apple podcast page. There's a little uh, click, the thing that says write a review, a little icon. It's not really an icon. It just says write a review. And you can click on it. It opens up a place to write a review. Anything simply from thanks to great job or love hearing you, that would be spectacular because we would like to write you a review and thank you for being a part of this podcast with us. Okay, our one-minute cooking tip. Line the inside lid of your slow cooker with a paper towel before you put the lid on if you are baking. Yes, you can bake in your slow cooker. You can make cakes. You can make brownies. It will absorb the condensation and prevent your food from getting soggy. And we know this because we wrote a book called The Great American Slow Cooker Book. We did. And it is a very good seller, and it is still in print, and you should go look for it. And when you put the lid on your slow cooker, put some paper towels down first. This is not... This doesn't go for stews, right? You don't need to because who cares if it drips back down? You actually want it to kind of condense and drip back down. But when you're baking, unfortunately, in a slow cooker, you have to create some kind of moisture in there in order to get a little steam. Sometimes it comes from the batter. Sometimes it comes because you put a baking dish or cups inside the slow cooker and add a little water like a bain-marie in your slow cooker. Ooh, how fancy. But then it's always great to put some paper towels under the lid, as Bruce says, to catch all those trips and not ruin your dessert. Up next, I, yes, I, I get to interview somebody. Uh, Bruce always does the interviews, but I am interviewing Jay Hirsch for his new book, Pour Me Another. So our paths have crossed quite a bit in the food business over the last years, but we have actually never personally met as far as I know. So maybe why don't you take maybe a minute to introduce yourself to our podcast audience? Uh, well, thank you. Yeah. And, and I really appreciate being able to join the crowd. Uh, no, it's, it's funny. You, we, we have been in the same spheres for so long and, and have never actually had a chance to chat. Uh, I, for a long, long time, was the Associated Press food editor. 
And because of that, got to meet everybody, go everywhere, do everything, eat everything, drink everything. And, and it was a great gig. And then about six years ago, uh, I started out being the food writer and then I became the food editor at AP. And then about six and a half years ago or so, I got a call from Chris Kimball, you know, formerly of America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Illustrated, who was starting a new company, Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. And and I got a call saying, hey, you want to you want to come join us? We're starting something new and exciting. And I said, yeah, actually, I would. That's kind of a cool venture you've got there. And so I, I joined Milk Street as editorial director about six and a half years ago. And now I still get to go everywhere, eat everything, meet everyone. And it seems to be my lot in life. Uh, it's a pretty good run at that. And, uh, but yeah, so I, I run editorial for Chris and we have a cookbook division. We have magazines, we have TV shows, we have a radio show. We have a culinary school, both online and in person, thankfully getting back to in person now. And, and we do all sorts of stuff. And basically our mission is to bring the lessons we learn from cooks around the world back to the U.S. and share them with our readers and viewers. So, J.M. Hirsch, you've already written one book, Shake Strain Done, Craft Cocktails at Home, and now you've got a second cocktail book out, Pour Me Another. Why a second? Okay, I'm just going to point out, though, this is coming from the guys who have, what, 35 books under their belts? <laughs> Yeah, I just want to I just want to put that on the table there. <laughs> we we are we are actually right now finishing up writing the 35th. So there yeah. we go. All right. So I wasn't too far up. Um, no, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I never actually planned to write cocktail books at all. And uh, but I do enjoy crafting cocktails at home. Mm. And and, you know, and I had actually, as you guys know, all too well, the grind of writing cookbooks is well it's a grind and and after my last one came out about I don't know, 10 years ago or so i said I, that's it i'm done i i, I don't need to do this i don't want to do this anymore it's, and uh but then i started playing with cocktails a lot more and and uh, eventually one thing led to another as as i'm sure it does with you guys and there there i was writing a new a new book the cocktail book shake strain done and uh, what was really important to me is in doing that book was to use a language that uh, people can taste, because I think unlike cooking, where the average home cook is at least roughly aware of how things are going to taste when they're talking about raw ingredients. You know, if you're talking about tomatoes and Parmesan and bacon and fennel, you know, even if you don't cook with all those things all the time, you have a general idea of what's going to be at play. I think it's very different with cocktails. And I think that when the average person goes to a bar even, and you see a list of ingredients in a particular cocktail, you don't necessarily know what that's going to translate to in the glass. And so when I wrote Shake Strain Down, it was really important to me to use this language that I, like I say, that you can taste. And so that it doesn't matter what the ingredients are, you know what the end result is going to taste like before you even try to mix it. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I came up with terms, you know, like refreshing, creamy, sweet, spicy, sour, strong, warm, herbal, things like that. And I used those to describe each cocktail so that you would know, again, before you ever even tried to mix it, 
what to expect out of the glass. You know, after that book was done, I got to thinking, well, what else does this uh, allow us to understand about cocktails, particularly at home? The joy, of course, of being at a great bar is you can tell the bartender, hey, I like something that's warm, a little fruity, a little sour, you know, and maybe maybe they give you a whiskey sour, something like that. Obviously, you can't do that at home. So I thought, well, if we if we build off of this language, what can we do with that? And I realized that, well, actually, if you are, let's say, an old fashioned drinker and you like them warm, a little sweet, a little spicy, you can use that language to find similar drinks that you would like. It takes you down unexpected paths. I think a lot of people don't know, to pick up on what you said, to speak to a bartender. They just order a margarita, let's say, or something like that. And they don't know to actually talk to the bartender because the bartender often knows something more about what you might like. And essentially then your new book, Pour Me Another, is acting kind of like a very good bartender. Like, oh, you like that, so maybe you'll like this. The part that I find exciting about it is that it gives you the opportunity to discover things that you didn't think you would like. You know, for example, let's say you're an old fashioned drinker, which I am. And, you know, so that means you like a whiskey cocktail. And you may not think of yourself as a gin drinker because you don't like gin and tonic. And that's fine. I mean, that is a very right. classic way of drinking gin. But there are many ways to mix gin that still play up its nuances, but deliver it in a different way. So, for example, if you're an old fashioned drinker, I always tell people to try Bijou, which is gin and sweet vermouth and green chartreuse. And it drinks a little bit like a Manhattan and it, not at all like a gin and tonic. You know, if you think you're not a gin drinker, maybe it's you just haven't had gin served the right way for you. Given this premise of the book that if you like X, then perhaps you're going to like Y. Let's talk about this uh, notion. Let's say that I like a uh, margarita and you have a chart of each of kind of the classic cocktails. And then you offer um, on the page other cocktails that you might like and directions to those recipes in the book. Let's say that I like a margarita. What's another cocktail that I might then like if I like a margarita? So a margarita is a cocktail in the daisy family. In fact, that's what margarita means. Daisies are generally built from a base liquor plus orange liqueur plus some sort of a citrus juice and usually a bit of soda water. So a margarita kind of fits into that equation by combining tequila, usually tequila blanco, but not always, lime juice, a little orange liqueur, and a little bit of sugar. And the result is sweet, sour, fruity, and refreshing. Mm -hmm. So the obvious way to go from there is to a daiquiri because you're still in that same sort of family. You're getting rum now as the base liquor and lime juice and sugar, and the result's going to be sweet, sour, and strong. But that's that's the usual way. We want to go in a completely different direction. Okay. And and you know because the whole point of this book is to kind of stretch your comfort zone. So if you're a tequila drinker, you might not consider yourself a vodka drinker, but you could drink a vodka fix, which is a relative of the gin fix, and it is now the base liquor is vodka, and you're combining that with pineapple juice and lime juice and a little orgia syrup, which is an almond flavored syrup from way back when, and just a hint of green chartreuse, which kind of adds herbal sweet notes. And the resulting cocktail is going to be fruity and sour and just a hint 
herbal. So you're still in that kind of class of margarita style drinks in that terms of the flavor profile, but now you're using vodka and you've added complexity through the green chartreuse and another dose of citrus juice. And that's the beauty of the book. Each recipe has a jumping off point. So if you like the drink that you make on one page, at the bottom of the page, it tells you, you know, half a dozen other recipes to try that have related flavor profiles. So from there, we're gonna go to the really inappropriately named cocktail called the monkey gland. It dates back quite a ways and, and it was inspired by this, I believe it was a Russian doctor who believed that grafting a, a monkey testicle onto a human gave them long life or something like that. It was it was some crazy backstory. So the monkey gland uh, combines usually absinthe, uh, gin and orange juice and liqueur 43, which is a vanilla spice liquor and some bitters. And the result is sweet and fruity and sour and a little herb. So we've gone from tequila to vodka to gin, and, and yet we're still in the same kind of flavor profile world. And again, if you like a margarita, you might not think, I'm a gin drinker too, but again, it all comes down to how you mix it. And that's, again, that's to me, that's kind of the fun of this book is that I call it actually a choose your own adventure approach to cocktails because you just kind of keep following the directions at the end of the page. And luckily, there's no like wrong turn in this book. And I think that that adventure part is what's so interesting because uh, I think all of us know that when we sit down and we make a gin and tonic or I, I don't know, but name the cocktail that you like, a margarita. I think that there's a way in which you're sitting down to kind of a comfort place. A lot of people get in a rut. Yeah. I, that seems negative, but in a rut about cocktails because it's a place that they know yep. because it becomes kind of ritual. And there's no doubt that cocktail culture is not ritualized. My <laughs> husband always says that the most sophisticated sound in the world is ice in a shaker <laughs> and that it is the single most sophisticated sound <laughs> that there is. But the, it is a kind of ritualized thing with cocktails. And because it's ritualized, it's very easy to fall into ruts. Uh, it really is. And I think one of the things that your book does is it allows the average person who wants to make cocktails to, as you say, go on an adventure or to push their comfort zone or to figure out something that is a little bit beyond the norm. How's that? Uh, right. Yeah, no, exactly. And to do it in a you know so-called safe way because mm -hmm. you're not doing it blindly which is often what we do when we're ordering drinks uh, off a menu at a bar. Uh, you're not doing mm. this blindly. You're saying, okay, I like drinks that are sweet, sour, and fruity. Okay, right. look for those characteristics in the book, and chances are you're going to like that drink. And in fact, each chapter is, is organized in that way, starting from kind of the lightest, most refreshing cocktails based on a certain liquor and working up to the strongest, warmest, spiciest cocktails, mm. all again on the same liquor so that you can explore like the spectrum of gin for, you know, again, mm. going from a gin and tonic to a bijou, which drinks like a Manhattan. That's a big span and of, of flavors and, and kind of ways of experiencing gin that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Right. But Again, you may not be a bijou drinker, but if you're a gin and tonic drinker, you're going to want to look for those kind of those bright herbal, you know, slightly sweet notes in other cocktails. And chances are you're going to like those. Given all of what you just said, and I think most of us know this, that setting up a bar at home is a 
it's a little bit pricey at times um, because there's a lot of mixers. We've mentioned a lot of different things like Orjad and the like Core 43 and things that are, mm, let's say, a tad expensive. And we both know, having written enough cookbooks and been in the food business, that people are resistant to buy an ingredient that they use once. Mm -hmm. Is there a way in which you can, I don't want to say cheap out, but that you can help on the expense of setting up a bar at home? First of all, I always suggest limiting yourself to, let's say, a dozen bottles. You want the kind of the core bottles that you would use for most cocktails. You know, you want a tequila, you want a bourbon, you want a rye, you want a gin, a white rum, an aged rum, a, a vodka, you want your sweet and dry vermouth. And if you got those, you're actually really well set at that point. You know, you could throw in a few others like, uh, you know, an orange liqueur or a liqueur 43, for example, or an Aperol, something like that. That's a nice mixer. But if you have those core bottles, you're really well set. That's the first thing. The second thing is I rarely, rarely, especially for cocktails, reach for top shelf. And you can go solidly middle to even lower middle shelf. Again, depending on what you're going to do with it. Like I would not use bottom shelf bourbon for an old fashioned because that's a cocktail where the, the whiskey is very forward in, in the drink. But if you are doing like a Cosmo, I would not be reaching for the top shelf vodka. You know, I would go very definitely middle shelf there. So you can save a lot of money depending on the bottles that you select within that category. You know, there are there are the, the liquors that you want to reserve for sipping, yeah. either neat or just with a hint of ice, like maybe just wave the ice around the exterior of the glass or something. And that's about it. I'm really anti-ice. And, um, you know, for cocktails, for most cocktails, mid-shelf is great. Uh, beyond that, the equipment itself is pretty inexpensive. You know, a stirring glass is great, but you could also use a liquid measuring cup. <laughs> you know, let's face it, uh, a shaker is pretty important. And but beyond that, you need a jigger of some sort. Um, but usually, you know, the little OXO measuring cups for liquid, that's you're good. And not a lot else. Uh, you know, a strainer. That's it. You can you could equip yourself with all the essential equipment uh, and, and supplement with things probably already in your kitchen for, you know, 30, 40 bucks. It's not too bad. Um, glassware is another area where you don't have to go crazy. I'm a, I love scouring thrift stores for great glassware. In fact, my husband has declared a rule that if any more comes in, something has to go up. You know, so I don't, I'm not a big believer in spending a ton of money on glassware. And then, you know, the, my final thought is, and I did a lot of this in my first book in particular, in Shakespeare and Dunn, uh, you should, rather than buying expensive mixers and, and like cocktail ingredients, so to speak, um, you can find tons of flavor in ingredients you already have in your kitchen. You know, teas, jams, spices, herbs, juices, things like that that you already have that you use in your cooking actually make great cocktails too. You know, a quick infusion of green tea or rooibos tea, which is nice and fruity, they make fantastic cocktails and cost you almost nothing. Again, as you say, you don't have to shoot for the top shelf bourbon or gin um, and you can come down. But, you know, I do think, as you said, for a decent cocktail, you can't go clear to the bottom. For most cocktails, 
where one or two liquors are at play. It's a cocktail where it's liquor forward, meaning like an old fashioned where it's very whiskey forward. You're just enhancing it with some bitters and a little bit of sugar. You still want that kind of middle shelf stuff. But when you start diving into the world of the Mai Tais and the Pina Coladas and the Scorpions and the Zombies, things like that, where there's a kitchen sink of ingredients, you know, that is not the place for even the mid-shelf stuff because you're going to obliterate all of the flavors. Let's talk about one cocktail that caught my attention in the book, and it's this cocktail called Satan's Whiskers. And I, first of all, I love the name of it, Satan's Whiskers, maybe because I run a podcast on Dante walking through Inferno. Oh, but well, there we go. Okay. Yeah, there you go. So, I, of course, I'm going to be attracted to Satan's Whiskers, and we're very much approaching Satan in, in the Inferno right now in that podcast. So this drink is made with gin, which I find is often a hard sell for people for mm -hmm. some reason. I think that a lot of people don't like juniper and they don't mm -hmm. realize that gin can be made from dozens of things besides juniper or it doesn't have to be right. like boodles the only thing in the mix yeah. as in boodles right um but that there can be a range of aromatics and i think that this cocktail of satan's whiskers helps people understand maybe the herbal side of gin so can you walk me through this cocktail yeah it's a really interesting cocktail and one of the things i did uh to research this book is to go back to the cocktail manuals from the 1800s and, and onward, you know, like through the 1940s and 50s, and try to find kind of, they're not necessarily forgotten classics, but drinks that people just are less familiar with and, and see if they could be resuscitated. What's interesting is, you know, the, the mixology of that time was designed to cover up um, let's just say less than amazing booze and you know especially during prohibition and and so cocktails then were crafted a little bit differently than what we expect now so one of the things I found myself doing over and over again was taking these kind of forgotten cocktails and pairing them back to their essence to let the ingredients shine so this is definitely one of those cases. And, and to your point about gin, you're absolutely right. I mean, gin, of course, has been having a moment for about the last 10 years. And there are so many different ways and expressions of gin out on the market now that you're going to find some you don't like. And you're going to find some that just hit that perfect sweet spot for you. It is a matter of, of experimenting. And some are more juniper forward than others. I like juniper, but I don't want it to bash me over the head. So, mm. you know, just kind of a moderate juniper botanical note to it. Something that's going to stand up in the drink, but not domineer the drink. Mm. So mm. now a Satan's Whiskers, I find if you make it the classic way, it's too sweet. It's, you know, it's usually a blend of, of gin, orange liqueur, dry vermouth, sweet vermouth, orange juice, and orange bitters. That's a lot happening in the glass. Wow, it is. And so when I played with this drink, I wanted to pair it back. First of all, the gin was being obliterated in, in the original version. And, and it was just getting too sweet. I mean, you know, between the sweet vermouth and the orange liqueur and the orange juice, you've got too much sweetness going on there. So I paired it back to gin and dry vermouth and orange liqueur with just a hint of sugar, a hint of salt, which I'll talk about that in a second, and some orange bitter. We've gotten rid of the sweet vermouth, which did nothing but muddy the waters on this one and make it too sweet and 
complex but not in a good way mm. and get rid of the orange juice which just added too much acidity and again too much sugar and allowing the gin and dry vermouth and orange liqueur to step forward and kind of showcase in this cocktail allow you to actually appreciate the gin i mean if you're not going to appreciate the gin you might as well just use vodka or, or moonshine or, or something you know i mean let the gin let the gin stand up and be noticed and and so i as i did with a lot of cocktails in this book i kind of paired it back from its origins to let it step forward now as for that salt so i am a huge believer in in salt in cocktails mm. and and i always say that you know just like in our cooking in our drinking salt elevates and rounds out all the other flavors mm. and you know if you go to a really high-end bar what you'll often see them do is use a salt a saline solution you know just water and salt in a dropper bottle and they'll add a little bit when they're making a cocktail and you can do that certainly it's a great way of, of guy kind of finessing your control over it. I'm too lazy to do that. And I just put a couple granules of kosher salt in, you know, six or eight granules of kosher salt mixes up fine. It's not a big deal. And, you know, the, obviously the idea of doing a solution is that there's no issue with it dissolving in the cocktail, but I don't find that with a stirred or a shaken cocktail, it's not going to have any trouble anyway. And, and it's, it's really a shocking difference when you add just that hint of salt, oh. because you won't taste the salt, it's not briny or anything, but you will taste the difference in all the other flavors. And it's fun to do a side by side of your favorite cocktail with salt and without. And, and you do notice the difference, kind of that brightness. So, so that's the mm -hmm. Satan's whiskers. Again, you know, yes. one of those cocktails, it's fruity, sweet and strong, but it needed to be less fruity and less sweet in order for the uh, the gin to come forward. Well, okay, one final question before we end the interview. What are you drinking tonight? My husband and I, we have a favorite cocktail that we go to more often than not, and that is the Vucare. And it originated in New Orleans, I think in the 30s. And I was introduced to it actually at the American bar at the Savoy Hotel in London. And, and it just changed my world. I said to the, to the bartender, I, I am an old fashioned drinker. I like a pre-prohibition style old fashioned, which means nothing but rye or bourbon plus a hint of sugar, a little bit of bitters and the, the whisper the word ice over it and nothing more. <laughs> and and so uh, I said, I want I like that. Give me something I'm going to like. And he gave me a Vucare and it changed my life. And and so a Vucare is uh, equal parts rye, whiskey, um, sweet, sweet vermouth. A cognac and uh, three quarters of a part of Benedictine, which is an herbal liqueur. Mm. Then you add Angostura bitters or the secret bitters that I smuggled back from the Netherlands, but that's another story. And Peychaud's bitters, and you stir that with ice and you strain it, and it is phenomenal. It's 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 this gorgeous marriage of an old fashioned with a Manhattan with kind of a sweet spicy herbal side to it it is a strong drink it is when when you make it correctly it's almost four full ounces of liquor uh when i make it it might push toward five ounces we'll see depends on my mood that night and uh it is just it is a wonderful slow sipper it's perfect for fall and winter and um yeah we have one of those 
frequently. Well, thank you, J.M. Hirsch, for being on the podcast. And thank you for writing the book, Pour Me Another, which helps all of us figure out how to go on a better adventure with drinking and cocktails and maybe come out of our ruts just a bit. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. As usual, we're going to end this podcast with what's making us happy in food this week. This is all about things that we love from our food life this week. And you're up first. You can find in the kosher food aisles of almost any supermarket bags of marshmallows covered in toasted coconut. Oh, my God. Marcus always tell me how much he loved those as a kid, and I always thought they were a Jewish thing because the only time no, I no, ever no, saw no. them was at my grandmother's house on the holidays, and now I only ever see them in the kosher food section, the soup market, and, I, and they're clearly they're kosher marshmallows with kosher gelatin oh on them. Oh, my God. And I love marshmallows with toasted coconut. Oh, can I tell my story? Sure. Uh, okay, so <laughs> I am a Texas boy, as you probably know, but I went we lived in Chicago for, for two years, second and third grade when I was a little boy. We lived in Chicago for two years because dad went there for work. And when we lived in Chicago, they were topping out what we called the Sears building at the time. And so they put the, you know, they topped out this thing that was at the time, what, the largest skyscraper in the world or whatever. And I was very excited about this as a second grader. And so I made my parents sit through a ceremony for the topping out of the Sears Tower. And I put on my little suit jacket and I gave a speech and I made my mother pass out coconut toasted marshmallows. And according to my mother, I pretended to introduce dignitaries. And how many people were at this presentation? <laughs> the three of us. My so mother, you, my dad, and me. You gave a presentation to your mother, your father, and pretend <laughs> dignitaries. And for canapes, you served toasted coconut marshmallows. I did. That probably tells you everything you want to know about me. Just not <laughs> such great stuff, but everything you might... I think it's very sweet. Yeah, it, it is kind of weird and wild. What's making me happy in food this week is something that you might be able to find where you live, and that is a sparkling Malbec called Guggenheim. And this is not a red Malbec. This is a Malbec rosé. It's sparkling. It's delicious. It's bottled under the name Guggenheim, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it is incredibly- it's South American. Inexpensive. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's 10 bucks a bottle. And it is the best, easy, fast, drinkable, delicious quaff you can imagine. <laughs> it's bubbly. It's sparkly. It's a little bit sweet. It's perfect before dinner. I love this Guggenheim Malbec ro Sparkly Rosé. We drank a bottle with pizza last night, and I'm going to do a shout-out to Empire Wine in Albany because mm. they have it, at least at the time of recording, they have it, and at the time of recording, it is on their free ship list. Now, they ship to almost every state. There are a few states they can't legally, but right. check them out because you could buy a case of this, and if you buy 12 bottles, they'll ship it for free. So yeah, and check it out. You get a case discount. I mean, it's the whole thing, mm -hmm. and it's it's literally 10 bucks a bottle. Guggenheim Sparkling Malbec rosé. It's delicious and great. That's our podcast for this week. We appreciate your being on the journey. I'm serious when I said I wish I could thank you each personally, and I will. Here you go. Thank you. Thank you for being on this journey with us. We really appreciate 
you being part of our life. And you can find more about us by connecting with us on social media, on Instagram, under our own names, Bruce A. Weinstein or Mark Scarborough, on Twitter and on Facebook, or in the Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode because every week we post a new episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.